What are your writing dreams? Finishing that book, quitting the day job, becoming a best-selling author? Well, over four years, we've studied the advice of over 300 best-selling authors who've collectively sold over half a billion books. And we are excited to announce the Best Seller Academy. If you're ready to take your writing to the next level with accountability, craft, and coaching, your bestseller dreams are now only a click away. To find out more and apply, visit bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. That's bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. Let's run the show. Hello and welcome to the Bestseller Experiment, where we continue to discover what makes a bestseller and inspire you to start, finish and publish your book. I'm Mark DeVoe. And I am Mark Stan. A huge thank you, as always, to our academics in the Bestseller Academy and our patrons over on Patreon. And we have a clutch of new names this week, Mr. D. Uh, a big, big thank you to Danny Edwards, to Claire Hanscom and to Jacqueline Dispenza. Thank you all so much for your support. It's much appreciated. Do come in, do come in, settle down, put, put your coats in the bedroom. We're going to have a little podcast party here and uh, we can all chat later on. Fantastic. And thank you as well to our academates as well. All of you folks keep this podcast on the road and we are so mm. grateful to you all. There are hobnobs for everyone that joins us. Virtual <laughs> hobnobs. say that. Don't no, yeah, virtual hobnobs. Virtual hobnobs. <laughs> um, it'll feel joining, joining and supporting this podcast is the equivalent of winning a year's supply of hobnobs. That's what I think. Keeps you <laughs> going. It's going to get very expensive. Some could sue us for, for hobnobs. <laughs> Lifetime supply. Oh, my goodness me. <laughs> Excellent stuff. How are you, Mr. Stay? How's life been this week? It's been good. It's been very good. It's been busy. I've um, I've finished the edit uh, on Ghost of Ivy Barn, which is the next Witches of Woodville book. So that's gone off to my editor who confirmed she received it, and it's now going off to the copy editor. So I've got Ooh. that to come next, which will be good fun. And I've spent the last couple of days polishing a short story and recording the audio version of it, um, which by the time this podcast goes out should be live. So it's a new free short story. It's a Witches of Woodville short story, but it's one set 2,000 years ago during Caesar's invasion of Britain, of Kent, frankly, invaded Kent. And we got very upset about that and sent him packing. Um, so it's, it's a short story called Caesar on Watling Street. And Watling Street is one of the oldest roads in, in Britain. It runs from Kent right through the country. It sort of slices across the belly really? of the land. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow, yeah. that's impressive. Yeah. That's we even... We even did a book about it at Orion. It's 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 amazing. Wow. It's amazing. That sounds street. like the Canadian Highway that runs all the way from the east coast to the west coast. It's ridiculous. It's but like was one it road. built by the Romans? Eh? Well, possibly. Not. <laughs> what have the Romans ever done for us? <laughs> the aqueduct. Uh, Hang on a minute. You said you said you recorded the audio. That's yes. a bit of a step down from having Julie Walters do your last one. <laughs> I would have thought maybe Judy Dench for this one, possibly. Or... <laughs> you know what? You know what? The irony is um, the, the the protagonist of Caesar and Watling Street is an Irish woman. Uh, so I could have really done with Julie, whose pe who's, uh, parents were Irish. She does a very good Irish accent. Instead, yeah. you're going to have to put up with mine. Um, did you actually do an? Did you now? How did you decide to do an, an accent? Because this is always very, the, the, the a very light, a very light accent. A very light. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good yeah, for yeah, you. Very, very I mean, I'm not going to do it here. 
Um, no. we'll have to get there. Oh, there you go. So you have to get the audio book too. Exactly. Yeah, so nice. all, all you got to do is sign up to my newsletter. And there's about five or six stories already there that you can... There's the Miss Charlotte Quartet. There's a whole quartet of stories there. There's all, all sorts of good, fun stuff. Absolutely. There's a recipe for jam roly-poly. Uh, what more could you possibly ask for? Oh, absolutely. Uh, and, yeah, and, and the reason we talk about all the things that Mark's doing in his world of books... It's just to reflect like what you could be doing as well, folks. You know, I mean, yeah, why not do your own audio book? I mean, yeah. short stories in particular, I wouldn't probably recommend doing your audio book if you've written a 90,000 word novel. No. That could be a struggle. <laughs> although, yeah. although a lot of people do do it, don't they? Especially in the nonfiction world, I've noticed a lot of authors like to read their own books, but I can't even imagine how many hours. I mean, it's never going to be like a read through or, you know, there's going to be retakes and messing yeah. up coughing you know i am um, to- i i find that i get wind <laughs> <laughs> i get burps. that's not I get, a good thing i get a bit burpy because i sit here with a glass of water yeah and i'm reading it i have it as big as it can be on the screen and i use my apple magic mouse to sort of scroll through and i'm reading it and because i'm taking <gasps> big breaths and i'm pushing on my diaphragm and you know, every now and then I, I have to stop recording lean back and go but well, it's kind of it's kind of an unusual thing, I guess, having to do that amount of, and it's a focus thing. When you you know, there's a psychological thing I always found when I re, when I record female vo, female or male vocalists, but mainly female because I tend to work more with females. Um, that the as soon as I turn on the red light and the record light goes on, their throat constricts (laughs) and they can no longer sing the notes that they could sing in the shower or in warm-up in fact you know what one of the biggest one of the biggest tricks of the trade in producing music producing vocalists is you start recording Mm. and then you say okay do can you do your warm-ups can you just run through the track a few times like warm-up those are always the best ones and the minute minute you say right we're going to actually record now it's like it's like they get a boa constrictor around their neck and they can't sing because there's pressure like vocal cords get tight so i'm sure the same kind of thing happens when you're recording not for us anymore because we're total pros aren't we the the podcast i mean look at us just turn on the light and we're off off and running making it all up as we go along there's the story one one of my favorite songs is reeling in the years by steely dan and there's a guitar solo at the end of that which i think is by jeff skunk baxter which is astonishing just just blistering guitar solo but they all say the rehearsal was better uh, yeah. And they never recorded, and ever since they always record the rehearsal. And you find this it, same thing happens in film. They'll, especially with digital now, because you don't, you know, you're not worried about footage of film, actual mm. celluloid film being used up. So they, you know, always shoot the rehearsal, always shoot that first take, you know. Yeah. Because yeah. what used to happen on film sets as well is you'd hear the film going through there, you know, and you know, you'd tense up thinking, oh no, precious footage film, I'm gonna I better get this right the first time. And then you screw it up, you know, whereas now it's kind of um, you know, they they can keep the camera running. Yeah. Now on 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 computers when you're recording, you have a tiny, tiny little red light. When you walk into a BBC radio station it's like red it's, alert on a submarine, it's, isn't it? It's like red alert on a submarine. <laughs> it's like if you're not worried yet, wait until you get inside the room. It's like there's a big red light outside the room and you walk in through this massive like door, um, you know, and you know, vacuum shut. And then you go inside yes. and there's just this big red light on air. And if there yeah. isn't something to like make you more nervous on your first ever radio appearance, it's that light. Well, I, I always I always take notes in with me. And because uh, I, I, I haven't done any for a while, but because uh, I usually 
if I do anything with BBC Radio Kent with Dominic King on BBC Radio Kent, I usually pre-record it now. Mm. Um, but I used to go in live every sort of six or eight weeks or so to talk about stuff. And um, I would have the book open, and I'd even write down Dominic's name because there's no, you just know that if you blank and yeah. you can't even remember his name, like Dominic King, and I'm talking about this, and I would just have things that I could just glance down and go, oh, yes, my name is Mark Stay, and I've written a book called The Crow Folk, you know, just in case <laughs> I forget the name of my own book, you know, which well, you, that, if you blank, to- you blank. totally yeah. happens. Totally yeah. happens. Yeah, if you even stop to think about <laughs> how many people are out there even on like a, a you know a local BBC radio, I used to do a, a lot of radio on the BBC, and it used to go out to the entire south southeast yeah. of the UK, which was like massive, massive audience. And if you even stopped for one minute to think, if you were actually sitting in a room talking to all these people, you'd be like in Wembley Stadium, mm. like you you just freeze up. You'd be like, oh my god, did I really just say that? But um, mm. it's fascinating stuff, isn't it? Fascinating. <laughs> but but. Um, I think it's very interesting. Before the show, folks, Mark and I were talking about guests we would love to have on the show. We were no, we were going into nostalgia world. I think that that Christmas special, Mark, we did where we talked about our favourite Christmas presents. It's, it started something <laughs> off in me about looking back nostalgically over right, our yeah. youth and childhood. But um, what we're going to start doing is we're going to start approaching um, some authors who were kind of icons of our past. We won't we won't reveal who they are until probably they're on the show, but. Little challenge for me and Mark. We're going to have a little list going, but I'm going to put it out there to everyone out there as well. Um, we've never actually really asked this, and I've always wanted to create a list, Mark, of um, like almost like a vote for an author that we haven't had on the show yet that you'd most love to have. Because I'm kind of curious to who of all the listeners, like who's who's the number one, who's the number one author, who's the you know top ten authors that people would most love for us to kind of chat with. Um, so maybe we'll get that set up at some point. But if you want to start the ball rolling, pop over to our Facebook group or Twitter and and uh, say who would you who you would most like to have on the podcast. But some rules, folks. Some rules. Number one, you can't vote for yourself. You can't get your friend to vote for you because because we'll know if you do. But um, give us the reason why you think they should come on the podcast, and uh, maybe we'll send out some uh, some little emails. Just sprung sprung that on you, Mark. And just to say, I? we have our Stephen King. We ha- yeah, we have mm. our Stephen King. We have our Neil Gaiman. We will continue to do so. Don't worry, they're on the list. Yeah, yeah, they're on the list. They're on the list. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's uh, it's it's a it's a fascinating. Do you know the thing that absolutely blows me away, Mark? I don't think we've ever talked about this. Every time I go into a massive bookshop, and I bet you do the same. I like to scan a wall and go, yep. Yeah, They've been on the podcast. They've been on the podcast. But the thing that blows me away, (laughs) how many people, like how many authors that haven't been on the podcast, because there's so many of them. Like if you go into an average bookstore, there are just, Mm. I don't even know. I I don't even, I I don't think in our lifetime, we could probably interview every single best-selling author out there in the world. Do you think? I don't think it's possible. No, of course we can't. Of course we can't. How many and, authors, you know. so here's a question, how many authors are there out in the world who are, you know, either bestsellers or, um, you know, have, have had a certain degree of success? I, I, I'd i love to find out that number. Oh, bloody hell. I mean, you know. <laughs> That's what you've got. Hundreds of thousands? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. A, a million? Easily. I don't know. I don't know. I don't do numbers, I've told you. <laughs> <laughs> I do words. <laughs> 
but it blows me away. It blows me away every time I go into the, into I look around. I'm thinking, gosh, you know, there's maybe only two or three people on this m- entire section, you know, of whatever it is, fantasy or you know, crime, and and it's it's just mind blowing. So, yeah, brilliant stuff. Anyway, Mark, talking of authors, let's dive in and uh, let's give a little sneak preview as to who we've got on the show today. Well, this is a returning guest. Speaking of, you know, <laughs> so Veronica Henry was on episode 126. Uh, so do check that out. I'll put a link in the show notes to that. But she's a Sunday Times bestselling novelist. Uh, she's worked on, also worked in uh, TV and radio, particularly on The Archers as well, uh, after getting kicked out of university, which she talks about a bit. She's won awards. She's won RNA Novel of the Year, all sorts of wonderful stuff. But she's got a new novel called The Impulse Purchase, which is about a mother, daughter, and granddaughter who buy a pub. Uh, and we discuss, among other things, we discuss challenging old cliches, finding your voice, and why you should love the world that you are creating. Fantastic. Let's dive in and listen to Mark chatting with the lovely Veronica Henry. Veronica Henry, welcome back to the Bestseller Experiment. How are you today? I'm very good, thank you. Yeah, good to go. It was beautiful on the beach this morning, but it's now not so great, so I timed that right. <laughs> Perfect stuff. Excellent stuff. Now, we're here to talk about your new book, The Impulse Purchase, in which a trio of women buy a pub. And I think I read somewhere on the internet, so it must be true, that after the frontline services of the police, paramedics, firefighters, all of that, running a pub is supposed to be one of the most stressful professions there is. And I know that when you did Night on the Orient Express, you, you you took a trip on the Orient Express for research purposes. So I'm hoping for the same spirit you got behind the bar for this one. What, what's your pub experience like? Um, I, you know, I've worked in pubs and bars and restaurants. Uh, not, not recently, I have to say. Um, and I do have quite a few friends who are in the hospitality business. So I do know both sides of the bar, if you like. Uh, mostly this you know the customer side these days <laughs> but yeah it's not something to be taken lightly and everybody has that sort of not everybody but you know one has the fantasy of running the archetypal English quintessential and English country pub but you know people do do it and that's what my heroine decides she wants to do because the pub's on the market and it's you know going to be sold to a property developer and she thinks no not going to let it happen <laughs> Wonderful and she's stuff. 69 at the time, so it's pretty, <laughs> pretty <laughs> drastic and brave. No, it's, it's, it's a terrific premise. Now, how much of the real world do you, would you fold into? Because obviously the hospitality industry has had a horrible time the last couple of years. You know, lockdowns, not lockdowns, all of the – it's been an absolute – I know our local pubbers, you know, they've been very innovative. They've kept their head above water, but I know not everyone's been quite as lucky. So do you fold the real world into – I mean, this is an ongoing debate in uh, the industries. Uh, do, do we put COVID into our stories? Do we shy away from that? Do we pretend it doesn't happen? How is that – what what decision did you come to with that? For this particular book, I decided yes. to ignore COVID completely. It, everything right. was so uncertain anyway. Whatever I'd written, you know, the future would have been different from what, from what I'd pinned down. Um, so I just thought, no, I think people are going to want normality and comfort at this point. They don't want my heroines sitting there going, have you... Have you, have you washed your hands and have you got a mask on and oh dear are we going to do have to do takeaways for the next six you know I wanted normal it's hard enough running a pub without throwing David into the equation and I felt the challenge was sufficient um, and more yes. interesting, and more interesting really because they were actually able to do what they wanted rather than stop start stop start 
um, yeah, so I did. I just took the decision early on just to pretend that um, COVID doesn't exist. <laughs> yes, I think we'd all like that. Um... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So a world which we would all love to be in, basically. <laughs> Setting the setting for this, you know, uh, we've got a pub and we've got a wonderful village as well. When did that come into it? Was it was was the pub the thing that triggered the idea, or was there something else that that got you writing this one? Um, what triggered the idea was I saw a review in one of our local papers or magazines um, of a pub in Somerset somewhere that was run by a mother and daughter team, and I thought, oh wow, that's that's great. That's um, a bit different. I loved the idea of two, you know two generations getting together, and then I decided to uh, you know that inspired me, and I decided to take it one step further and make it a mother, daughter, and granddaughter team um which was great because I'm really interested in how the older generations and the younger generations kind of feed into each other these days you know like the the young ones are you know listening to the wisdom of you know how the world works and then the older ones are kind of tapping into whatever TikTok you know that kind of thing (laughs) and I love that relationship particularly the grandmother granddaughter relationship It it was really fun to write and also I just felt that that age group the sort of so, so call it 70, you know, traditional t- retirement age when everything's supposed to be winding down. Mm. And I just know so many women of that age who are really dynamic, still very involved in life, still working, still running businesses. Um, and I just don't see them reflected on the telly in that mm. way or in books in that way. Um, you know, grandmothers, 70-something women were very often still portrayed as a bit dowdy and a bit frumpy and a bit sort of gr- traditional granny-ish. And I thought, no, yeah. I want to rock it. I want to shake that up and so cherry is amazing and wears skinny leather jeans and is on it <laughs> well this is the thing our, our our punk rockers are pensioners now aren't they you know this exactly, is exactly exactly yeah. when you think of all those yeah and they're still you know wearing biker jackets and yeah. why not why not? exactly <laughs> and as you said that 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 the the grandparent and grandchild dynamic is really interesting because they both have a mutual enemy which is the one in the middle uh, the parent in the middle, which yeah, is always yeah, fun to play. Yeah, middle person. Um, I think it can be a really strong and lovely, you know, because as a grandparent, you don't have all the responsibility that a parent has. Mm. So you can you can be yourself without all that annoying nagging and worrying and pestering. It's quite a pure relationship, untainted by, um, you know, that that's a parental responsibility, which is, you know, we don't, we don't, always want to be the nag no. um, as, as parents um so yeah i think grandparenting a lot of my friends are becoming grandparents and really loving that experience mm. i'm not there yet but <laughs> it's interesting to watch them <laughs> um rushbrook i i did a quick bit of googling i don't think rushbrook is a real place it's, it's fictional it's fictional so how do you how do you build a village from the ground up like that is it is it a kind of greatest hits of of villages that you've been to or Oh, that's a really nice way of describing it, actually. That's perfect. Yes, it's, uh, and as with all of my books, wherever I've created um, is usually a mishmash of of places I visited distilled into the perfect, you know, whether it's a beach hut or a clifftop house or indeed a Somerset village. So yes, Rushbrook is kind of that village that we all want to move to. And I'm particularly interested in Somerset because it's become very much the in-place for people from London to 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 move to because it's so accessible you know it's two hours on the train so it has had a lot of what they call DFLs deep down from London's and I was interested in the impact of that on a village as well 
you know, these people swanning in and thinking, oh, yes, I'm going to paint everything, you know, sage green and <laughs> take over. Um, and, you know, the the locals aren't always that impressed. Um, so, yeah, it's just fun. I, I love all of that sort of slightly social comedy, a bit like the Archers, if you like. Yeah, it's funny. I live on the Kent coast and they have the DFLs is the same thing. When we first came, they said, are you DFLs? And we said, no, we're, we're, we're AFSs. We're across from Surrey. Um, so. <laughs> very good <laughs> um, I think this is your 21st novel I think do you know what I I think it's my 20th technically but I have written so I've, I've written some di- digital only books and a, and a quick read for example mm. which bumps up the sort of overall backlist but yeah I think it's the 20th full novel are you getting the hang of it by now well here's the <laughs> thing in a way, but it's never, it's still, it's not easy. It's the same fears and worries and dilemmas and tortures as anybody who's listening probably recognises um, are still there, even after 20. Yeah, of course, I have definitely found my voice. I definitely know what my readers want. Um, and I have a sort of, I wouldn't call it a formula, but I know the rhythm of my books and how they work, which of course are based on very, you know, traditional storytelling arcs, if you like. Um, so, you know, I'm comfortable within that framework um, and I'm not, I'm not trying to do anything revolutionary. And sometimes I mix it up a bit. I quite often do two timelines, but I'm not going to do anything, you know, to upset the apple cart particularly because my readers do expect a, a certain read. Um, so- but yeah, you are starting from scratch every time. You have to find a story. You have to find interesting characters. You have to find something that propels you through 90,000 words, at least. Um, and that is a massive challenge. And it, I, I always say to people, it, it's not supposed to be easy. I don't know why people look for a way to make it easy, actually, mm. because it's kind of insulting to suggest that it, that it should be easy. It, it, mm. you sh- there should be blood, sweat and tears going into that work to make it perfect. Um, there's, you know, if you just get up and write and think, yeah, that'll do, then that's not good enough. <laughs> it's funny. My um, uh, edit just came back from my editor uh, yesterday, and I've had a look at it this morning. And it is that thing of, you'd think I'd have learned by now. Uh, you know, it, it's just here we go again. You know, it's fun. I enjoy the process. I enjoy the problem solving. But you're right. It doesn't, doesn't get any kind of... Um, Every time, I won't make the same mistakes. I'll make all sorts of new mistakes instead. It's also going to be new mistakes because it's an entirely different premise, an entirely different plot. It, you know, the tensions are different, the points of view are different, and it's that's why it's such a great relationship, the editor-writer relationship. You know, yes. if you get a good editor who really gets what you're doing and understands your your voice and your, your aura, if you like, um, but then can put a fresh perspective on it and you know sometimes I don't know about you sometimes I just go no I'm going to fight for that <laughs> or yep oh yeah yeah, yeah. go away yeah. and think why isn't that coming across in the way it should do I, I sort of go away and ask why has she made that suggestion or or yeah. objected to that what what's behind that and then I find my my way of fixing it I don't like being told how to fix it I have to no. say <laughs> uh, because that just doesn't work in the way that I work I can't be said you know, if somebody said Oh, change that chapter and cut that and just put put in that they do this. That doesn't work for me at all. I have to go away and work it out for myself. 
Yeah, it's um, it's I think it's a Neil Gaiman quote that goes around online, which is don't listen to the fact that there there is a problem, but don't listen to the fix. You know. Yeah. It, oh, it's, that's it's, really it's, interesting. Yeah, that's basically what I was trying to say in yeah, far too many yeah. words. <laughs> um, I'm completely misquoting and paraphrasing him, but it is it's the kind of thing where you go, okay, they, they don't understand this one thing here, but it's usually something two chapters ago or something someone said or just one word you might have changed or or whatever. So Exactly. Yeah, or very often it's tone. You know, sometimes I might go a bit dark. Um right. and you know, my reader, you know, it's not that bad things don't happen in my books, because of course they do, because otherwise it would be if it was all lovely, 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 it, there wouldn't be a story. But sometimes I just tip over into sort of slightly too dark and then I have to sort of put a touch on the tiller and lighten it a little bit or find a way to make it you know less less downbeat if you like um and when you're writing you know you get so absorbed into it that you can't stand back and see that as a you know so that fresh pair of eyes and they're coming to it as a reader would is absolutely essential so anybody that thinks they don't need editing is, um, yeah, fine. Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> Good luck. With a touch, a touch on the tiller. I like that. I, th- I think we found the the title for this episode. Touch <laughs> on the tiller, or a complete about <laughs> <laughs> face. <laughs> yeah, it can be a touch on the tiller, or it can be a. Comp- you know, I've had to cut 40,000 words before. <gasps> I did that with, um, I think it was a wedding at the beach hut. I had a, a sort of backstory strand and at the minute I delivered it I thought that's that's not gonna work I know I know that the notes that come back from that strand I know what they're going to be and I know that the best way of fixing it is to cut it because I didn't want to compromise that story particularly and I just emailed my editor and went uh, by the way before you read this this is <laughs> this is this has got to go <laughs> which was pretty brave I think because it did involve a lot of work um and that's when experience does kick in I suppose mm. um yeah, and I guess I was second guessing and I knew deep down so but it, yeah it's a draft process isn't it you've kind of yeah, got to get it wrong absolutely. to get it right I think mm, absolutely I, I I think of the editorial process as, as failing a little less with each pass uh you know just just trying to make it a bit better and let's talk about that experience because you worked as a script editor uh, in TV and uh, in radio as well, I believe. So you spent, uh, you know, a great deal of your sort of formative years as a writer looking at other people's writing, looking at, you know, things that didn't quite make sense or things that could be fixed. That must have been incredibly helpful as a sort of uh, a basis for starting a career. Enormously. I mean, I, I did go to university, but I got thrown out. <laughs> hard enough. Um, so then I went to what I have now called the University of Ambridge because my first job was typing Archer scripts. And that's, mm. you know, so I was thrown straight into the world of storytelling. And that's when I realised that everybody needs an escape. You know, we all need to switch off. And I was utterly beguiled by the whole notion. You know, I, I was 20. I didn't listen to the archers. But the minute I got into that world, I was like, wow, this is just lovely. Everybody really wants to, you know, Im- immerse themselves in this fictional place. Um, and, you know, we typed them on typewriters. That's how long ago it was. Uh, and the writers would deliver a typewritten script. And then William Smedhurst, who was the producer editor at the time, would red pen it. So he'd cut things he'd rewrite things he'd put new dialogue in he'd swap scenes around he'd cut scenes off earlier so it really it literally was the University of Ambridge I was learning how to tell stories and how to sharpen 
dialogue and how to make sure that the listener tuned in the next day. I mean, it was absolutely crucial. That that episode ending had to be a cliffhanger mm. to make all of those people turn onto the radio the next day. So it really was, it was the most brilliant way. It was better than going into any writing course. Or, oh, and I was incredibly lucky. I learned mm. from an incredible person. He also taught me that um, stories aren't just about huge things. They could be about tiny little things, and that's yeah. when character comes into it. So I can remember one week, the the story, the biggest story was who had stolen the over sixties tea tea money. <laughs> <laughs> it just kind of reverberated through Ambridge, and everybody suspected everybody else. And it was it was just the sweetest, loveliest story, but so great because it reflected everybody's character. Yeah. You know, do you think it was Walter Gabriel? No, it can't possibly be Walter, you know. Um, but is it, you know, because he's you know, not so well off. The, oh, I can't remember what the actual plot was, but, you know, it was just a really, really, really clever way of getting everybody's personalities on, on, on the air. We talk about stakes a lot because uh, we have an academy for writers and we, we talk about this on the podcast a lot and on our Facebook group. And it doesn't have to be an asteroid plowing into the earth. It can be something as simple as, you know, the thing that is most important in your character's life, the thing that's going to get them through the day, that that little straw that, you know, breaks the camel's back uh, that, that can make all the difference. These things, as you say, it all comes down to character for something like that, doesn't it? And it's... um. Uh, it's it's it, there's a real knack to getting that right as well. I think, particularly with series characters, because they there's a lovely familiarity to series. When you watch a show and you think that character's always going to do the wrong thing, or that, or and you can you know surprise that, invert that, all that kind of stuff. That's um that's great fun to play with, isn't it? Oh, it is, and it, it, yeah, it's a moral dilemma. You can't you can't beat a moral dilemma or something that questions their integrity. I think that's always good if you're testing their the strength of their personality and kind of pushing them into a corner and making them think, oh, do I do the right thing? Do I do the wrong thing? Yeah, it's, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, just just testing, I guess, is the is the key. I want, I want to go back to something you said earlier about finding um, your voice, which is something that took me a very, very long time. And certainly if, if you're working, you know, as a script editor, there's a big focus on character and storytelling and cliffhangers and all that good stuff but get finding your voice when you're writing narrative fiction that can be that can be really tricky how long did it take you to get that was there a kind of an aha moment where you thought okay i'm not this is me i'm not pretending to be someone i admire or, or whatever it's really interesting and i think um i think social media has made it that more difficult because everybody is so very much looking at what everybody else is doing and working out how they can get that success. And I think that's the point at which you lose your voice. I know that my first book was 100% me. It was completely, I wasn't distracted by anything else. Um, I wasn't thinking, you know, I had people who I admired and wanted, uh, who sort of, like Jilly Cooper, for example, um, whose work I loved and would love to have emulated, but I didn't Mm. sit down and try to write like her but I knew that my mind worked in a similar way. We're both a little bit naughty and <laughs> we love that world of that Cotswoldy kind of, that social comedy. Mm. Um, so, I, uh, yeah, with my first book, I was 100%. And people would read it and go, oh, my God, it's just like listening to you. <laughs> it's like you're reading <laughs> um, I, And I don't know how 
how and I think sometimes I've tried to write in a different way or 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 go in a slightly different direction and that and I know that the minute I've lost my voice then that's it but it's really hard to I don't know I don't know how you get that except just to be yourself um Mm. I guess and write, you know, play to your strengths. And, you know, the worlds that I'm writing about, I know those worlds really well. I understand the people that, that are in them. So I can write that with confidence. Yeah. It's confidence as well, I think. Yeah. yeah. Confidence in the world that you're moving in. Uh, you know, because they say write what you know, don't they? Um, yes. And I don't, you know, I don't always agree with that. I, I think, you know, you can do research and not necessarily have been a policeman to write a police series or... Um, but you know, you definitely are writing with more confidence if you know what the procedure is, for example. I think I think write what you know is some of the most misconstrued advice. Uh, I remember a, a teacher telling me that, and I was like, "Well, I'm 14 years old and and obsessed with Star Wars. So I mean, what can you know?" Um, but I think it is about that thing of discovering who you are. That's what's what it's really about. Write what you know really should be. Speak with your own voice. You know, speak with a take a take. You know, tell show the world through your prism you know and and uh, try not to be anyone else so um, yeah so for example in 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 the impulse purchase there's a pub quiz well I've done many pub quizzes and I know how those work and I know the competitive table that I want to you know that really want to win and I know that the sort of smug people that just kind of sweep in and set up you know, set up the competition and I know the person that's going to get pissed and fall off the chair at the end of the night <laughs> you know, I know how that all works and I have fun with it and I think that's part that's kind of finding your voice isn't it knowing what you know about yeah and having fun with it do you know what that's that's the key I think it's to love what you're writing to really love the world that you're creating it doesn't have to be fun it can be a dark world but I think if you love it and you care about it and you're interested in it and you understand it, that's when you find your voice. Absolutely. Brilliant stuff. It really does. It really, really does. And you spoke earlier about over time you've, you've discovered what your readers want from your books and how much is that in your mind when you're writing? Uh, do, do you ever kind of have to, you spoke earlier about maybe going a bit too dark. Do you ever kind of stop yourself and go, maybe I shouldn't do that? Or do you kind of put it in anyway and experiment with it and see if it works? Yeah, I mean, I think now, yeah, I keep that tucked on the pillar as I go through and, and kind of recalibrate as, I, as I'm working through it. And um, and I do have that safety net of knowing that my editor will tell me. So I know yes. that there's always, I know it's a draft process. So, you know, it's not like I'm publishing it to the world when I press send. <laughs> I know there is a safety net. Yeah. So, but yeah, you want, one has to be conscious. And that, that's when I think things like your Amazon reviews are, can be really useful. And you see what's coming back, not, not just positively, but negatively too. You know, if you have a negative comment that's come up more than once or twice, you really need to pay attention to that. You know, so right. if, if, if people are saying, oh, there's way too many characters at the beginning and I just didn't know what was going on, you, you need to think about that. Um, if people are saying, oh, the ending was too too predictable, then you have to think, right, okay, I need to work a bit harder on making my endings less predictable. Right. Happily, actually, um, recently, I've had just really nice reviews. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, they're all really sweet and lovely at night and just saying, and I think it's a, I think it's a bit zeitgeisty. I think it's because we've all had such a horrible time 
and it is a quite a cozy lovely world that they're escaping to and a big strong sense of family and friendship and you know it's co- not co- it's not cozy cozy but um yeah it's a nice place to be I yeah. think and I think that's that's it's so that's li- it's, very encouraging it's so, life 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 affirming stuff life affirming stuff yeah so for now that's what I'll write because because we do want that it's still very unsettling isn't it mm, absolutely what's coming next from you veronica next book set in paris which is very exciting um because it's somewhere i i love um and i do have a secret fantasy of going to live in paris which has been completely trashed by you know (laughs) (laughs) Um, brexit um yeah i just I would just have loved to have taken an apartment in Paris for six months just to see what it'd be like to live as a Parisian. Um, so it's kind of inspired by that notion of a, a woman of my age just going, right, <laughs> I'm off. <laughs> I'm off the Parisian dream. But I can't tell you any more than that. <laughs> but it's kind of like, yeah, it's my fantasy in book form. <laughs> <laughs> and why not? Why the hell what not? You like. <laughs> exactly. Write what you know, but write what you love as well. Yes, exactly. Oh. <laughs> yeah, it's about manifesting it. So this is my way of manifesting my Parisian life. <laughs> <laughs> well, folks, the impulse purchase is out there to buy impulsively. Just just do it. Don't even think about it. Just grab a copy right now and uh, you won't regret it. As well as uh, Veronica's uh, 20 or so. We've lost count. We've simply lost count of how many, how many wonderful stories you've written all the time and everything you've given back to the writing community as well. So thank you so much for that, Veronica. And our absolute pleasure and I hope to speak to you again soon. Absolutely. Good luck to you. I like the fact, Mark, I do like the fact that Veronica decided not to go with a COVID-based background in her book. It's kind of refreshing in some ways, isn't it? Because I'm starting to watch shows on Netflix where everyone's wearing masks all the time and I'm thinking, oh, really? Like, we can stick with fiction. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it's um, I think it's a choice that you have to... If you're writing contemporary fiction... Or even if you're writing something set slightly in the future, whether or not you do make any kind of reference to it. And if you do make a reference to it, then how much of it does it affect your plot and your world and what the characters are doing? Uh, you know, the the easy choice is just to go, no, sod it. I'm not going anywhere near that. You know, let's leave it alone. Um so, yeah, I think we're going to be seeing a divide, actually. It'd be interesting mm. to see how many authors we, we talk to throughout the year writing contemporary fiction who decide to to go with it or just ignore it. And, um, you know, and also what's happening in the world this week as well, you know, the terrible situation in, in Ukraine. And, you know, there, there are all these world-striding events um, that we can either choose to lean into or, or just, you know, ignore and i think that will that affects the the focus of your novel you know so mm. i mean i guess if if you were like a a thriller writer in the early 2000s if you're kind of a tom clancy style you know thriller writer dealing with political stuff then there's no way you could avoid 911 you know and if you're a, if you're a cop writing about uh you know police procedures here and now I mean, I you can't avoid what's happened with George Floyd and and the whole Black Lives Matter movement. It's interesting that the the writers of uh, Brooklyn Nine Nine, which is a, a series focused very much on the police, uh, and it's very funny and light hearted, 
and they had to stop and they, i think they you know they had to completely rewrite a, you know shows that had already been scripted in order to say you know we 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 have to change our tone on this so you know if you're writing something about i don't know families then Obviously, you know, as we discussed last week or the week before, I think we were talking about we've all been affected by COVID one way or another, some sadly more than others. And, you know, I think depending on your experience of that might affect how it, how it, how it affects your writing. Yeah, and it's actually very interesting. It's a very interesting decision that writers have to make because on the one hand, I know, and we've had this experience as well, where we reference kind of events that were happening whilst we were writing Back to Reality. Some people said, oh, I, I got this book. I wanted to, to I, I wanted to get away from all that stuff. I didn't want to read about that. So some people want to want to escape from it and others, others love to kind of meet it head on. And I think it, it can work either way, depending on the reader. And the other thing that I think is fascinating is whilst we're in it, like whilst we're in the middle of all of this, the COVID or, or these wars that are happening, it's so huge in our world. Like it's completely affects everything that we do, especially like when we look at how over like the length of time that COVID has kind of gone on and how things still aren't back to kind of what we'd think of as normality. And, but really that's a blink in the eye of the universe over someone's lifetime or several generations. So I think the challenge is, is that, it can really timestamp the book and it can date the book in a good or a bad way. It can date the book saying this was a point in history and it's a really important thing that happened to humanity and I'm including it in my book. Or, you know, hopefully <laughs> five years down the road, people are like, oh, another COVID story. Yeah, been there, done that. And, they, and, and they, it's a kind of a turnoff for them because it feels like, oh, that was like, that's so 2021. Or that's so mm -hmm. 2020. Yeah, yeah, so it's yeah. a hard one. And I, I don't really know, I don't really know what the best route is. And I guess every author just has to make their own decision on that. I guess the other thing is we're still in the middle of it. I know, I know we I all know. pretend that COVID is over, but it's not. <laughs> I know. <laughs> you know? And I know and certainly the situation in Ukraine is far from over. Oh, you know, and, and there gonna, might be yeah. you know, there might be people, like say two or three years down the line, listening to this. Going, you know, oh, you supported Zelensky, but what about that time he dropped a nuke on everyone? You know, you just don't know how it's it's all going to turn out. It's still it's still unfolding. You know, it's still giving us nightmares, and we have no perspective on it other than that kind of rolling news that's depressing us all. Um, so you know, it's uh, it's it is very very difficult to take a position on it when you're still in the middle of it. So I kind of appreciate that Veronica's not not diving into it that way. Yeah, in some ways, it's probably easier if you if if you want to include it to include it once the once everything's kind of finished, so you've got then that perspective on it, and you kind of yeah. know how things pan out. It's like you know when you read a newspaper, you can only discover what's happening in the now. But you know when you read a book about the subject, so a book on uh, you know a book on the Falklands War is going to have a written now is going to have a much greater perspective on it than you know, what was in the daily newspapers then because they've sat back, they've looked at the whole picture, they've looked at different perspectives. So, you know, that's um, that's the difference to me. I think if, uh, uh, you know, so thank God I write historical fiction at the moment. I don't have to make that choice. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> One of the other things that I found really interesting that Veronica talked about was this idea of saying 
that it's it's not meant to be easy to write a book. And it was actually really refreshing to hear that because I know what she means when, you know, some people kind of want to go into this and find it just a really a, a beautiful process that just flows from from the first word to the last. And we know that in reality, that's never really the case. Um, and it's it's nice. It's, it's, it's great to hear kind of this honesty of actually it's not meant to be easy and it's meant to be challenging because challenges are things that help us grow ultimately as writers. And it kind of made me think of an analogy of like a mountain climber. Like if you were a mountain climber, you wouldn't go and just want to scale a 10 foot wall. That'd be, that wouldn't help you in any way whatsoever. You, you know, well, you, at my age, <laughs> exactly. Right. <laughs> but, but the point is, is that there's, you know, it's about, it's about finding that challenge, whatever your, wherever your cap, whatever your capability is today, what's the, what's the hill or the mountain that you want to try and climb up? And then of course, when somebody's done that, what do they do? They don't go for an easier one. They go for something more challenging and they kind of maybe build their way up to Mount Everest or something like the pinnacle of their lifetime achievement. And in some ways, if we look at book writing like that, I think it could really change the way we embrace it rather than get really bogged down with, oh, it's such hard work. It's such a slog. <laughs> well, when you, I mean, it, it comes in gradations. I mean, when you're writing your first book, the challenge is to finish that book and take those 80, 90, 100,000 words or whatever and have them make some kind of coherent sense and tell a, a story that's a story of change and is, you know, moves people. That's That's the first challenge. Then when you write books two, three, four, five, and whatever down the line, then you're presenting yourself with with other challenges. You know, even if you're writing a series, you're thinking, well, I mean, this is the thing I've got with, with book four. I'm, I've started work on the fourth Woodville book. And I'm touching on subjects that I don't think I would have touched on in the first book or the second book. And, and I'm thinking, okay, this is this is going to be hard writing about this. This is to do this justice, I'm going to have to dig deeper than I have before. To do you know, if, if I'm going to make this work, I'm going to have to be a better writer than I have been before. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of, it would be very easy just to repeat and do the same old thing again. Um, but uh, I would get bored writing that. And I think the readers would get bored reading it. So I think, you know, once you're into that, you know, third or fourth book in a series, you're thinking, okay, we've got to not just up the ante in terms of the story and the stakes, but up the ante in what it what you're doing as a writer. Can you touch on subjects that might be more complex than before? Can you uh, go to places that you might not have dared go to before? And that's what floats my boat at the moment. You know, just thinking of okay, right, yeah, I've done I've done this in that one. Can do we dare do this in the next one? And it's um. It's exciting and it's scary and, you know, it's a bit, ooh, am I going to get through this? And that's what sort of, you know, keeps me coming back for more. Yeah, I think I think it does help to feel a little bit daunted by whatever you're tackling because it means that you're kind of moving outside your comfort zone. And when you move outside your comfort zone, you either run back into it and say, oh, that wasn't a very good experience. But the bravest of brave people stand their ground and let the comfort zone grow around them. And that makes your world bigger. It makes you a better author. It makes you, you know, more worldly in some ways in terms of your experiences. So I think it's a really important thing for people to recognize. And uh, it was really refreshing hearing that kind of perspective. Mm. 
Yeah, absolutely. I, th- I think the bolder and braver you are as a writer with each progressive book, I think the better you will become as a writer because by stretching and pushing yourself, uh, you will, you know, you you will fail. You will get things wrong. Things won't work out the way you wanted. But you know, failure is how we learn. Getting things wrong is how we kind of figure out how to make things right. Which is what second and third drafts are for as well. You right, know, that's absolutely. the other thing. Yeah, yeah. It's, well, um, yeah. And it's also it's for people who are actually just struggling with their first book or thinking of writing their first book or kind of stuck somewhere in the middle of it i think it's also important to recognize the idea of progression chapter to chapter that kind of idea of book to book can also be relevant to people who are mm-hmm. you know by the time you get to the last chapter in your book you're going to be a different writer to when you wrote the first chapter and you'll see that there's been a progression of you know thing challenges that you've you've hit along the way and breakthroughs that you've made and then when you go back to it, when you start on the, you know, the second draft, you're the new writer that's starting from the beginning again and, and, and kind of leveling up everything to what you've, what you've achieved towards the end of the book, maybe. So, yeah, interesting. I like the idea of kind of climbing a mountain. And um, the other thing that Veronica talked about as well were principles that she's learned. I, like, I love this idea of as you, as you become more and more proficient and wise and worldly, um, and have more experience of writing books, you kind of start to develop your own principles, you know, things that you know always are solid that work for you. And I think that's the benefit of an author who's been at this for a while and been doing a lot of books, is that you can start to get that perspective of like, these are my set of rules that work for me. Things I've tried, some I've discarded, but these are always solid things that help me. And it's interesting to hear that, you know, she still has these kind of story arcs, which are, you know, borrowed from, you know, the great storytellers of, of our time, but how she has her own principles that she kind of always sticks with. You must find that with your work as well, I guess, Mark. Yeah, I and it has to constantly evolve, I think, too. You know, you develop mm. these things. I'm Go back and listen to episode one of this podcast. I'm not that same writer at all. The writing has always evolved, and ch- mostly through talking to you and authors and and our patrons and people in the academy. You know, every everything I've done in this podcast has helped me become a better writer, without without question. And yes, you do get these sort of bedrock ideas that that maybe, but you know, you go back to episode one. I was a big I was a big outliner, as as we all know. I'm not now. You know, I'm not now. For me, it's been much more about thematic ideas and characters and journeys of change and all that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, I think as long as you allow yourself room to evolve as well, which Veronica clearly does, um, then that's fine. I think the minute you think, right, this is it, got it sorted, these are the rules, I've got it all figured out, that's when you get stuck in a rut. Yeah, yeah. Well, we're always we're always changing, we're always learning the only constant is change ultimately throughout our whole life. We're never going to stop learning new things, even on the day that we learn our, on our like deathbeds, we're going to be like learning something that morning or evening. <laughs> it's just like crazy in some ways. So having, so I think really for me, it's about having that openness and philosophy of knowing that we'll never learn it all. We'll never truly master something. We'll become near masters, hopefully, and, and proficient at, at, at writing. But it's that having that kind of humble humbleness to say there's always something new that we can learn and that will always make someone a better writer down the road. Mm. Now also the other thing that really jumped out, which I loved, was this this idea of these three generations of women yes. in the story. What a brilliant idea. Well that's 
that's this is why Veronica's a bestseller, I think, you know, because she can write about these generations in in such an appealing way. And of course, you pick up that book. It is a classic Mother's Day book, but of course, a mother can read it, a daughter can read it, a granddaughter can read it. They're all going to recognize themselves in there. And I know a lot of authors are thinking, well, if if I'm if I'm young, how do I appeal to older readers? Or if I'm middle-aged, how do I appeal to younger readers or or, or whatever? So, you know, if you have a good spread of characters, then there is something for everyone. Um, uh, I mean, in the the Crow Folk, we've got three witches. One is young, one is middle-aged, one is about 500 years old. So, you know, that 500-year-old market is big for me. It's very, very big. Um, so, so, yeah, being able to appeal across that spectrum is, um, is, is really, really key, I think. So, you know, which is... But if you know, if you find a niche, if you, if you discover that actually I'm really good at writing forty-eight-year-old men, you know, forty-nine-year-old men, then go for that. And if that's your market, figure out what they like and write for them. But I think if you want to, you know, appeal to as many people as possible, then um, having a good spread of characters is is really going to help you. Yeah, absolutely. And also putting them in what you might think generally is a, a relatively unusual situation. I mean, I've never heard of this before. I've never heard of like a, a grandmother, a mother, and a, a daughter like buying a pup. So it's yeah. that idea of like great. taking great taking classic kind of maybe family generational ties, but putting them in a in an unusual situation where I'm sure all kinds of shenanigans happen. So that's that's a bit of uh, it's a real you know genius move in that regard um, because. I guess no matter what situation you put them in, the characters will still interact as they would do between each other. They just give them all kinds of issues to deal with as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's, I mean, again, it's why Veronica does so well. She takes these ideas and always gives them a fresh spin. There was a period when working in publishing where it seemed like every novel that was in kind of contemporary fiction was about uh, two generations, a mother and a daughter, and there was an inheritance. It was about a house. There was always an inheritance and a house and a house and inheritance. It was like, oh, for God's sake, probably something different. Uh, but, but, you know, when, you, when you've got something like that, where you've got though, you can take those characters that appeal to that sort of sector of the market and put them in, you know, because Veronica, I mean, she's, she's put them on the Orange Express. She's put them in a pub. You know, this is, this is giving these ideas a, a completely fresh spin, which is, um, which is always fun. I mean, she uh, she did the Beach Hut books as well. You know, the you know just taking those characters and putting them in a really appealing thing. You know, people have always dreamed of getting a Beach Hut, and there's you know there's a waiting list, uh, you know, years long, and and it's 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 having that kind of um, fulfillment of a fantasy for that that market as well. Yeah, yeah, brilliant stuff. Well, thank you so much, Veronica, for coming on the show again. We yes, really appreciate you. it's been absolutely fascinating as ever. And uh, Mr. Stay, social media, what's been happening on social media this week? Well, we mentioned Jacqueline Dispenser at the top of the show uh, as one of our patrons. Well, Jacqueline uh, is has got a book and it's out and it's it's called The Shadow Dreams by Jay Dispenser. And she dropped us a line. She said, um, uh, a, she said, the book is now live, a neophyte psychic, a horrifying premonition, a battle between destiny and those gifted few who can change it. High school has never been so rough. And she said, special thanks to the two marks and the 200 word a day challenge. It really works. And I said, congratulations. And Jackie got back. She said, thank you. I've been listening to the bestseller experiment and all the amazing guests since the beginning. And I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart. Your word carried me to the finish line on this project and i'm already three chapters 
into book two. So, Jackie, huge, huge congratulations on that. And, and thank you so much for your kind words. Brilliant, Jackie. Well done. And speaking of kind words, I got a copy of Steve Gowland, uh, again, a member of uh, Patreon supporter and member of the Bestseller Bestseller Experiment Facebook group. Uh, The third book in his trilogy, The Soul's Abyss, he sent me a copy and he put a lovely little note in here. First first of all, first of all, he put on the um, jiffy bag to Lord Stay. So I appreciate that. <laughs> Thank you. That immediately got open before anything else. So that's always nice. Um, and he said, this is this book, Darkness Falls, he says, marks the end of part one of The Soul's Abyss. And I just wanted to take this opportunity to say thank you. I would never have completed one book, let alone three, without the inspiration of the Bestseller Experiment podcast and the wisdom of you and Mr. D. Thank you sincerely. So Steve, best of luck, folks. The Soul's Abyss book book one go grab your copies over you love your fantasy you're going to love this the dark realm coven of shadows and darkness falls and um yeah inspired by the podcast Woo-hoo-hoo-hoo. brilliant darkness falls book three well congratulations for getting the trilogy done as well that is a milestone that no one can ever take away from you steve you're gonna the rest of your life you've done it you've yep. it's absolute massive achievement and i know Fantastic. this is the thing i love about people like Steve, when they've broken through and they've achieved something they never really thought was possible, you're now sitting, you're, you're sitting at the top of that mountain. But you know what, Steve, <laughs> do you know what you see at the top of that mountain? You see the next mountain in the distance mountain. Right? <laughs> and it's a bit bigger. But the point is, the point is, is you'd never, you, you couldn't see that other mountain if you weren't sitting at the top of this mountain. And that is what life is all about, folks. It's all about pushing yourself and trying the things that you maybe thought weren't possible and pushing yourself out is outside comfort zone and then building the strength and the, and gaining the experience to be able to look at that other mountain and go, do you know what? I might just give that a go. <laughs> and the thing is when you do like, I mean, th- this is when all the crazy stuff starts to happen. Right. So brilliant, Steve. Thank you for those lovely words, but also more importantly, thank you for inspiring people and we say this all the time but it's true you you know through the actions that you do in your life you inspire others generations to come as well and your books are out there now for everyone to enjoy so fantastic climb every mountain ford every stream (laughs) follow your rainbow till you find your dream i am available for panto um right (laughs) If you want to get in touch, uh, drop us a line. Uh, we are at bestsellerexperiment.com. There's a contact tab there. Or find us on Facebook, Bestseller Experiment, or Twitter and Instagram, at Bestseller XP. And if you've enjoyed this show, if you've been inspired by the show, this show has made you think, hmm, I want to write something, I want to finish something, I'm in the middle of something, I want to carry on. Give us a rating, give us a review, and subscribe. Click that subscribe button. Keep coming back for more. Absolutely. And don't forget, folks, thank you to all our patrons that have joined us recently after my big rage and rant <laughs> a few weeks ago. Yeah. But keep them worked. coming. Don't worked. stop. It worked. <laughs> but don't stop now, folks. Don't stop now. Pop over and support this podcast. If you love this podcast, if it gives you a little bit of inspiration each week, if it keeps you going, then please do support this podcast. It's very simple. You go to bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash support. You pick a tier. It's like $1, $2, $5, $10, $50 if you want to join the BXP team, whatever it is for you, whatever you can afford. Please, please jump on board and you will get tons of extra goodies, including many, many, many hours of deep dives, um, uh, 
to 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 just feast on if you if you want to get even more of the bestseller experiment between these sessions that we do each week and as I always say as well, if you're interested in um, becoming a member of the Bestseller Academy, it is currently open for new applications. So pop along to academy.bestsellerexperiment.com and let Mark and I become your coaches. Join us for group coaching sessions on craft and life coaching, plus access to over 30 in-depth courses on how to start, finish your book. And if you're also just at this stage where you're trying to get going, it's the 200 word challenge is probably the best place for you right now. 200wordchallenge.com. See if you can beat a streak of seven days. Just write 200 words a day for seven days and see what happens. Let the magic unfold, folks. So Mr. Stay, thank you so much for your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure. It's beautiful weather we've got. There's so much to be grateful for in life, folks, even though there's so many awful things happening out in the world. Try to stay positive. Remember, no amount of feeling sorry for people will make a difference. Be the change. Like, do something. Do something to help the people out there in the world right now that are struggling. Um, in fact, don't join us on Patreon this week. Put that money towards a good cause um, and and a charity that will help people that are struggling right now. But remember, no amount of feeling sorry for people will change their world. So let's make a difference by doing some random act of kindness this week. And um, I send uh, I send my kind of thoughts to everyone out in the world who's struggling right now for whatever it might be, um, whatever might be happening in your life maybe that's difficult. Hang in there. Remember, folks, favorite quote of all time, behind the clouds, the sun is still shining. Never forget that. All right, folks, it's a goodbye from Mark 1. And goodbye from Mark 2. Climb every mountain, search high and low, follow every highway, every path. I'm going to be sued by Rogers and Hammerstein. Is it Rogers and Hammerstein? <laughs> anyway, yes, goodbye, everyone. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Bye.